Danny Mac Show with BK. Podcast powered by I Promise. Now, here's Danny Mac with BK. I think Wainwright and Molina will return to the Cardinals. I, I, I talked to Wainwright a couple weeks ago. He said it was mulling a couple offers, but you could just tell the way he was talking that St. Louis was still on his mind. I haven't talked to anybody with Molina's camp lately, um, but it's my understanding that somehow, some way, they're going to find their way back there. Jesse Rogers of ESPN on Carriker and Smallman yesterday. This is the Danny Mac Show with BK. I'm Dan McLaughlin. That's Brandon Kylie. Tander Hendrickson is with us. Um, I'm in agreement with him. We're going to jump into that in the first segment. Jay Jaffe, who does an incredible job breaking down the Hall of Fame, is also going to be our guest. I'm tending to think that the marketplace, and I said this to you yesterday, BK, that Molina's is shrinking while Wayno's is getting bigger. And then we get a report this morning, according to Derek Gould of the Post-Dispatch, quote, Molina continues to weigh an offer from the Cardinals to return for the upcoming season and await an improved offer that would clinch the decision for him. He said Adam Wainwright, though, quote, has received several competitive offers, and one of the current offers is from the San Diego Padres. And again, that's Derek Gould this morning from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Good morning to you, and we'll see where this takes us. Dan, I am fascinated by this. It seems to indicate that the ball is now in their court. It is a matter of whether or not Adam Wainwright and Yadier Molina are okay with the offers that the Cardinals have sent out. And a matter for Wayno, it appears, whether or not he decides that this is the best opportunity for him. I found it fascinating that Derek Gould said Wayno has received several competitive offers, including one from the San Diego Padres. What do you make of that one, Dan? The Padres being the team that is listed there. They have got Darvish. They've got Snell. They've got Lamette. They've got Musgrove. So three of these five. They also have Chris Paddock potentially in the rotation. And if you're Adam Wainwright and you're saying, hey, if I'm going to go out and I got a chance to win, if it's not St. Louis, I got to look at San Diego. There's some, So if it's multiple offers, I started thinking about this. Who else would it be? Maybe reunited with Tony La Russa. I'm just going to throw that out there. How about the White Sox? Top of their rotation, one of the best in the game that doesn't get enough credit, Lucas Giolito. Um, they got a Dallas Keuchel. They got Lance Lynn. So you, you could have a guy like Lynn throwing fastball after fastball. Keuchel coming in there, left-hander. Uh, you got Giolito's got elite stuff. And then all of a sudden, Adam Wainwright's flipping breaking balls time and again. That might fit in their staff. What about the Mets? They traded Steven Matz. Now, to me, when I see them trading for Steven, or trading Steven Matz, it, it tells me that maybe Mr. Bauer is heading to New York. That was just my initial thought when I saw that. But they've got DeGrom. They've got Stroman. Remember, they traded for Carlos Carrasco. Noah Syndergaard is coming back at some point, and the Mets should be very good this year. So if I'm Adam Wainwright, it's not about just, hey, I'm taking the best offer for the money. It's about where am I going to have a chance to win, and those are places that uh, make sense to me. Honestly, any contender makes sense. I could make a case for the Yankees as well. I could make a case for the Phillies or the Nationals to add to a strength there with bringing in uh, Adam Wainwright. We've talked about it here locally with the Cardinals, but it applies to everybody in baseball this season. It's going to be weird with the way that these innings are going to work. Right. You're not going to see, I don't think at least, a single 200-inning pitcher going into next season, especially guys that are younger. Because teams not are going to be... guys, that's right. Teams are going to be really, really careful with them to make sure that they don't break going into 2022. It's about more than just one season. And so if you're one of these contenders, especially in the National League... And you think, hey, we've got some young guys that we really like, but we need to get through the regular season. 
and get those guys to the playoffs healthy, Wayno's the perfect type of guy to bring in because he's willing to eat those innings for you. Willing to do it. He'll tell you, keep throwing me out there until I break down. And also the intangibles of just, you know, being around young guys, watching how a champion has done it before, whether it's, hey, he's done it in the bullpen. He closed out a World Series. He's been in contention for a Cy Young. I think all those things are important for an organization as well. According to Derek Gould, also this morning, uh, the free agent infielder market, he got into Colton Wong. He said the Cardinals have not actively pursued a reunion. This does not surprise me. For a team that is struggling offensively, and there's no other way to put it, it was a team that was not very good offensively a year ago. Colton Wong at a 675 OPS at $11 million bucks or $12 million, It was $11 million after the buyout. That ain't going to fly, and there's going to be other teams now that the second base market is starting to get defined that look at Colton Wong. On the flip side, if you don't bring back Wong, um, the Cardinals will turn to Tommy Edmond. Talked to Tommy two weeks ago. He's out in San Diego, and he told me every single day he's working at second base. The indication has been, unless something changes, you're the opening day second baseman. Um, and if you're a team that gets Wong, by the way, you're getting a hell of a, of a defender. So how much value do you put on defense? But in this day and age of baseball, BK... What are you doing for me at the plate? Are you hitting for some power? Are you hitting in the gaps? Are you hitting home runs? And Wong, apparently, that at that price tag for the Cardinals, that was a little too deep and steep for their prices. That was one chip that they had to maybe have some savings. So it probably doesn't look like a reunion with the Cardinals. To me, there's two indicators here based on the lack of interest in Colton Wong. Option number one, they think they have a, a better option out there to finish out their infield, probably at third base. Option number two, the money is so tight right now that they just, this is not a move that they feel like they can make. And the reason why I say that, Dan, is because Colton Wong, I understand that it's mostly defense with him. He does have an on-base percentage, though, that you would like to have at the top of this lineup. The Cardinals do not have a clear-cut leadoff option right now with Wong not being on the roster. You also have a hole at third base right now. I know Matt Carpenter. I know what the contract is. I understand they would like to get him going, but... If we're honest, over the last two years, the production just hasn't been there for, for Matt Carpenter. So if you brought back Wong, it does help you at both second base and at your leadoff spot. And also, you could move Tommy Edmond. I know he's been working at second. You could play him Absolutely. at third. And you upgrade defensively at both spots. I think you upgrade offensively at both spots. So it makes me wonder, is there another move out there that they prefer over Colton Wong, especially given the money that Wong might command if he does have uh, multiple other offers out there? I would agree. Um, The other part I want to get into, speaking of third baseman, Nolan Gorman, the youngest third baseman to be ranked as a top third baseman prospect. This is coming from MLB.com. He ranked fourth best in baseball, according to MLB.com. the other guy that I, I wanted to talk about a little bit is Jordan Walker, who was a, uh, a pickup this last year in the draft. He was the 21st overall pick by the Cardinals. He's 6'5". He's got great bat speed. I wonder if he projects, though, maybe as a corner outfielder, maybe a little first base, too. Now, you have Goldschmidt there for years. It depends on when you think Walker could get there. He's a high school player, so it's going to take some time. But the Nolan Gorman thing is interesting, and I was down in Springfield, Missouri last night doing a basketball game, and Springfield is where they have the AA affiliate, where Satellite Camp was. And a lot of people coming up to me and saying, I, what happened to Nolan Gorman? I said, well, he was in your backyard. <laughs> they had no idea. And Nolan Gorman, I talked to him two weeks ago, too. He said one of the great things that happened at Satellite Camp, it was tough not playing games. Obviously, they want to play in competitive atmospheres and get better and see how they measure up against other teams and other pitchers and other guys at their level. 
but he worked with Jose Oquendo every single day. That's something to keep in mind. So he's got the master of defense, if you will, in teaching that aspect of the game, working with him. That's something to keep in mind. The other thing was is that he's a left-handed batter, and he was facing Thompson, Libertor, and the other top lefties in the Cardinals organization by design, constantly doing that. Um, it, I, I, I'm really curious, BK, and I'm curious on your thoughts on this. As you talk about one of the themes of baseball this year is that maybe starters don't get to 200 innings. Maybe nobody does. And maybe we see piggyback in a rotation. Maybe we see um, extra spot on a 25, 26, 30-man roster dedicated towards pitching. I think the other thing that's interesting, too, is that when you have guys like Libertor, Thompson, Nolan Gorman, and then across Major League Baseball, how many teams are going to be tempted to bring up young prospects because of what happened last year, which was a missed minor league season? And let's face it, it's cloudy right now when that minor league season is going to start in 2021. How aggressive will teams be in bringing up their prospects? And I think that applies to some of these guys we're talking about. Especially young guys like Gorman, who has not played above A-ball so far. He played in high A-ball, played 58 games down there in 2019 for the Cardinals. Was okay. Had some production, but struck out more than you'd like to see. Didn't walk as much as you'd like to see. Hopefully he was able to work on that last year at uh, summer camp. I would like to see him get some opportunities, at least at double A. We've seen this in the past where teams will just skip triple A entirely and just bring guys up straight from double A. So that's it's not a huge bar to clear. You could see something like that if they're fast tracked coming up quickly, especially I think didn't Jordan Hicks kind of go straight from double A to the majors, basically a ball. So, yeah, we've seen something like this on the pitching side in the past. It is a pretty drastic jump, though, on the hitting side. I'd like to see him get some opportunities at a lower level because of those strikeout prone issues. He's a really interesting player to me, though, Dan, because he's the exact type of bat we've been talking about all offseason. All offseason. I've talked a lot about Jock Peterson and how he could help the Cardinals lineup. It's a different position, but the profile that Nolan Gorman could bring to the Cardinals is very similar. Strikeouts, lefty bat, power. That's what you're missing right now, and he could potentially bring some of that. 314, guys, wouldn't it be best just to run this team out there as it stands? By the way, uh, and this goes to the point of your question, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw something at you, BK. The entire NL Central, okay? Do you know how much money they've spent? Huh. I think I saw this earlier. Isn't it like $7 million or something like that? Oh, no, like no, 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 no. <laughs> South. Keep going. $1.7 million? A little bit up. <laughs> You're on the the point seven. You're right. Two point seven million. Keep going just a little bit more. Three point seven. There we go. Ding 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 ding. Three point seven million dollars spent by NL Central team so far this off season. So when you're a fan out there, and I get it, I'm one of them. I, I'm sitting there saying, go out and get this guy, get that guy. This could help your offense. If you're the Cardinals and you got 20, 21, 22 pitchers coming back, we're talking about how pitching is going to be at a premium. It always is, but more so this year than ever. You can understand why. Your patience might be your best virtue in this particular scenario of a crazy offseason and going into 2021 and an uncertain 2022 with the CBA. Can I uh, pass along something from Yadier Molina's Instagram account? Yeah, yeah, sure. Hit so me with it. Yadier Molina posted a photo in black and white, a very ominous photo of him walking off of the field or walking out to the mound. It's difficult to tell for sure. Uh, with Adam Wainwright, side by side, and the caption just says, hermanos, brothers, with some praying emojis next to it. Will you stop with all this stuff? Stop. 
Stop reading into Instagram pictures. I don't care. Dan, what else am I going to do? Well, there's not a lot going on. I can tell you this. Like many sports, the COVID-19 pandemic has hit the NHL very hard from a financial standpoint. Report this morning they've been hit so hard that according to a report from Mark Burns and Chris Smith, did you see this, of Sports Business Journal, league has borrowed approximately $1 billion. $1 billion, which will be divided amongst the 31 teams. And I I have thought a lot about this with the Blues, and I applaud the league for playing. I appreciate it because it gives me something to do and watch and cheer. And, you know, my kids enjoy it, all those things, right? We love to see sports. But if you're not putting fans in the seats, I really wonder about the financial viability of the league. Now, they'll get through it. But it's it's tough, man. This is not easy to do. And I applaud then the ownership group for spending to the cap and doing what they're doing with the blues. On the plus side, borrowing right now is cheaper than it's ever been before. Like I know that as somebody who's getting ready to buy a house, the the rates on that money right now is incredibly low compared to what it has been in the past. And for a billion dollars, it's even lower than what I'm getting ready to spend on a house. So that helps. You're a big spender, the though. Yeah. Something like that. Big spender. Um, I I would also say that here in St. Louis, it is great news that the Blues are going to be able to have, I believe it was 1,400 fans in the stands starting next week. Love it, yep. That could be important for the Cardinals moving forward as well. If you're able to get 1,400 in an enclosed arena, I would imagine that is a pretty good indicator. The Cardinals, when their season begins, Barring something unforeseen, should be able to have fans in the stands, socially distanced once again. Bill DeWitt III talking about, in an interview I did with him two weeks ago, the geometry of the stadium. And it's not as easy as saying, for fans that didn't hear this, know about it going from 10%, 20%, which is what I've been saying. You go to 30, then you go to 40 and 50 and so on and so forth. He said, if you're going to be six feet apart and you're in clusters and those kind of things, um, basically you get to about 28% and that's going to be it. And then it, hopefully you can open things up, which will be uh, a great for all teams, all baseball, all fans and every sense of life. Blues Golden Knights tonight, game number two. You can listen to it on 101 ESPN. Stay out of the penalty box, please. I want to see retribution on Bozak. I want to see Bennington back well, in that's there. That's not a good way to stay out of the penalty box. I don't care. <laughs> uh, that one I'm going to be okay with. Go get him. Do it. Do whatever you got to do. Uh, I saw the line, though, the other night of Schwartz, Thomas, Cairo, when they were kind of shuffling some things after guys were out. I like that line. I think it's productive. And Bennington right now, BK, um, in five on five, and this is where the Blues, you know, their bread is buttered. But, you know, five on five, he's fourth in save percentage right now in the National Hockey League. They got to, though, stay out of the box. They had six penalties the other night. They killed off five. Only Vancouver has had to kill off more penalties than the Blues. So, to me, you stay out, you play five on five, you got a great chance to win. Thomas and Hoffman, those are the two. You mentioned them on the line that you liked the other night. I want to see those two get it going tonight because Thomas on the season still has just three shots. I'm not a guy that is going to be ripping into Robert Thomas for not shooting enough, but that is like no shooting whatsoever. You've at least got to be somewhat of a threat. So I need to see Robert Thomas get more involved in the offense, and hopefully we can see Mike Hoffman start to break out it came on a power play, that'd be nice to see. So coming up, more fallout from the Hall of Fame on the baseball side. Senior writer, this guy does an incredible job with the Hall of Fame and probably makes you take a different look at how you should vote for the Hall of Fame. That's Jay Jaffe, senior writer at Fangraphs, and he's coming up next. This is the Danny Mac Show with BK, the podcast powered by I Promise. Dan McLaughlin, Brandon Kylie, as we take you to 11, then BK, 
We'll be talking a lot of Blues hockey. Blues coming up tonight at 7 here on 101 ESPN. The senior writer at Fangraphs is Jay Jaffe. You can see him on Twitter. Follow him at J underscore Jaffe, J-A-F-F-E. I've got his book, so he better be nice in this interview. Jay, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. I uh, love your book. It's great work. I think it opens up the eyes of a lot of people that love baseball like we all do here in St. Louis and love the Hall of Fame. So I got to get your initial reaction to what we saw a couple of nights ago. Nobody going into the Hall of Fame. Probably not a surprise for you. But what did you think? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think the uh, uh, there's some disappointment that uh, we didn't get as much fun this time around as, as we usually do. Uh, but it was pretty apparent from, you know, really from, I think, mid-December that this was going to be a, a rough cycle. Uh, and that, uh, uh, you know, true, if you're a true hallhead, you're looking to the middle of the ballot to see uh, the up-and-comers as opposed to these guys at the top of the ballot who are just so polarizing and, you know, kind of suck some of the joy out of, uh, uh, out of these debates. I wanted to ask you, Jay, about the guy that we certainly care the most about on this ballot here in St. Louis, and that'd be Scott Rowland. He he certainly surged this year, still not quite above that 60% mark, but it seems like based on him being, it was year four or five uh, on the ballot, it seems like things are headed in the right direction for Scott Rowland. How far away do you think we still are from seeing him ultimately inducted? I mean, I think we're probably two two or three years away, um, but th- he was the big winner in this cycle. Um, you know, he has put together some of the largest two- and three-year gains that we've seen any candidate make uh, in the modern history of voting, which is uh, to say going back to uh, 1966 uh, when the voters returned to uh, to the annual balloting. Um, he's gained 35, 36 points over the last two years, about 43 points over the last three years. You know, 10.2%, which is what he debuted with, that's generally considered dead and gone. People, you know, a lot of voters won't pay you any mind after after you draw that in your first year. Uh, he's lucky that, uh, um, you know, the, the, the ballot space kind of opened up uh, – uh, on him and that, uh, you know, those of us in the in the uh, analytical community have been heard, you know, in terms of our evaluation. I have him uh, uh, the 10th best third baseman all time, according to my uh, my jaws metric and uh, uh, on the strength of his defense and, and uh, uh, which is top five and, and his offense, which is top 15. If we're talking, you know, historical third baseman, I know people feel that um, some people feel he didn't play long enough, but he was just uh, an elite fielder and. Uh, the package, I think, was was tremendously underrated. So uh, I think he's uh, he's going to be on that podium someday. Jay, I think we've done a disservice to the writers. I think they've been put in a terrible position with what's going on here. I've changed my thoughts on this. I think maybe we need to change the way that we look at voting and how voting is done. Do you agree with that? And if so, what needs to change? Well, I you know, I think that there's so much uh, debate around the PED guys and you know, and the meaning of the character clause and, um, uh, you know, it, it, it's subjective. Everybody, you know, everybody has their own interpretation of what it means. I think, you know, I think what, what, what part of the reaction we've seen is that, you know, this character clause has been in place since 1945 or so. Um, it was generally used, uh, it was intended to be, uh, used as a positive, uh, um, but it really didn't uh, didn't really have much effect until the steroid era uh, guys started getting on the ballot, starting with Mark McGuire in 2007, and it's generally been used as a negative. Um, you know, the Hall of Fame uh, has you know has offered relatively little guidance until the Joe Morgan letter a few years ago, which kind of stopped Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens in their tracks. Uh, I think they they do want. Uh, people to consider character in the negative in that way, and the, the but the result of it is just this 
you know, rancor filled cycle uh, where these debates are just stifling and, and it, it's tough. And, uh, um, you know, as far as I'm concerned, if a guy's on the ballot uh, and eligible for election, I think it's fair to, you know, fair to consider him. But I, I understand that we all bring, uh, you know, different means of, of parsing uh, what that is, you know, both when it comes to steroids and when it comes to other things, you know, like, uh, I mean, in this case, domestic violence, uh, the talk of domestic violence uh, dominated uh, some of the conversations because uh, Omar Vizquel was uh, uh, credibly accused and, and reported uh, reportedly had multiple instances in his past. And I think people are giving that a lot of weight in general in our societal discussions, and it, it spills over into the uh, Hall of Fame deliberations. So, um I don't think there's, it's wrong necessarily to try to hold ourselves to higher standards than the past, um, but I do think uh, we're going through an awkward phase uh, with Hall of Fame voting in that regard. We're talking to Jay Jaffe here on 101 ESPN. Jay, I wanted to ask you about Kurt Schilling in particular because he's one of the guys that came under the most scrutiny over the last few years, really, but certainly in the past year. I, I wanted to ask you kind of a roundabout way about this because this was his ninth year on the ballot, and he's going to be done next year. It's going to be his final year. If Kurt Schilling had got in on the second or third ballot, if we go down that hypothetical path, uh, just based on his numbers, what would the conversation be right now as him being in the Hall of Fame, him already being enshrined? Would we go back and have something to say about it now? I'm just I'm curious, how would the Hall handle that if Kurt was in already and he's still making the same comments that he has over the last two, three, four years? Well, I think it would be embarrassing. Um, I think it would be embarrassing, but you know, I mean, we've the hall has never kicked anybody out. I don't think that once Kurt Schilling is in, anything he has done is going to rise. You know, w- would have risen to kicking him out. But I do think we can make us. You know, we 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 can try to send a message to him that hey, this is unacceptable. We do not want to give you a platform. Uh, you know, up in up in Cooperstown, we do not want you. Uh, to reap the advantages of being a Hall of Famer, if you are going to use your platform for hate speech, um, you know he's he public persona wise, he comes off as a very miserable uh, person who just really, um, you know, he's so far off the reservation uh, uh, as you know as far as we're used to in the sports dialogue. Uh, unfortunately, not far off the reservation in terms of what we're hearing from a sizable chunk of this country, but. Um, you know, it, it, calling Dr. Fauci a Nazi, uh, you know, s- tweeting in support of mar- calls for martial law, um, you know, endless conspiracy theories with regards to the presidential election. I mean, I'm, I don't I don't want anything to do with that. I don't want, I'm not going to let that guy uh, have a platform if I can help it. Clemens, Bonds, Schilling, each back for their final appearance on the ballot. And then next year, you have A-Rod and David Ortiz. So it gets even more complicated. How do you think the voters will handle those two? It's going to be a mess. Um, it's, it's, uh, uh, I think the, the problem is, is, you know, we're going to get a lot of cognitive dissonance. Um, I think the, obviously, A-Rod with the, with the, with the suspension has the strongest sanctioning uh, by Major League Baseball. Uh, in terms of what he's done, Ortiz uh, reportedly failed the survey test. He's he's probably you know he's the one who's got the I think probably the uh, uh, the reputation most intact, but he's by far the least uh, talented of those players. And the likelihood is he could be the first one of those guys to get in. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to look very strange and and the gerrymandering of logic uh, necessary to get you know, to to support his candidacy and his candidacy alone for that four. It, I think it's going to be just 
almost laughable. So um, I think we're going to, you know, maybe we'll see some, some reconsideration in terms of the way people approach this uh, particular uh, matter, but uh, um, it's not going to be a fun debate. As much as I was saying before that the writers are, are now put in a very tough position with what's going on, I, I can't, though, back up writers that send in blank ballots. You send in a blank ballot, you're penalizing players who have a chance for the Hall of Fame and immortality. And a ballot that arrives with no check marks, correct me if I'm wrong, next to those names only reduces the percentage of the votes received by the other candidates. So I'm not so sure that you can allow those guys to continue to vote if they're not going to vote on any of these players. Well, I think you know, I I, I think the react the the reaction to I'm not a big fan of blank ballots, but I think the reaction to them is is a bit overblown this time around. What they're you know those blank ballots worked against Kurt Schilling, they worked against Barry Bonds, they worked against Roger Clemens. They did not really work against the, the mid ballot guys who made you know ten to fifteen percent gains. Those guys weren't going to get in anyway. Uh, they took substantial jumps that suggest that uh, uh, they are going to. Uh, you know, someday get in. Uh, a guy, a guy sending in a blank ballot this year didn't really hurt Scott Rowland, for example, um, uh, because he wasn't going to get in anyway. I think fifty-two percent, fifty-three percent, wherever he's at, that sends a message that this is a guy that uh, everybody's going to have to take a closer look at uh, in the coming years to see if they're if if they're going to add him. I don't think people are going to hold. Uh, you know, hold it against him uh, that somebody was trying to stop the action of Kurt Schilling, um, which I think is really what these what, the, what these blank ballots were sending. Because you know, twenty out of twenty two times somebody got to seventy percent, they were elected the next year, and uh, you know, it was uh, Jim Bunning, uh, the uh, the pitcher, uh, was the only one who didn't get in, and he had it happen twice in a row. Um, but uh, uh, now it's 20 out of 23 because people did not want to see Kirk Schilling get in this year and uh, because he couldn't get out of his own way. So I think that was, that was really the message of the blanks. Final question that I have for you, Jay. You wrote a book called The Cooperstown Casebook. You literally created a metric called JAWS that a lot of Hall of Fame voters use in their analysis of these players to decide whether or not a player is worthy of getting into the Hall of Fame. This is, in a lot of ways, your life work. This is what you do. This is what people come to you for. What is it like now to, I mean, we get to this to the end of this process every year, and it almost feels like it's as much about the complaining as it is about celebrating the players, obviously this year notwithstanding, that get in. It, it, has it become difficult for you as a Hall of Fame voter and a guy that has spent so much of your life work on the Baseball Hall of Fame? You know, it's interesting. I got my first ballot this year, actually. Ten years in the BBWA, finally qualified to actually vote. It was very cool, but one look at that ballot was like, oh, this is not going to be a fun cycle, is it? Um, you know, but uh, at the same time, it was very cool. I think people, rec- you know, people, enough people recognize that, that this is a longer process single year and that, you know, one, where it's not much fun, um, you know, is not, uh, should not be, should not dismiss the whole, the, the whole enterprise. I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful that people find value in my work. Uh, it has helped me. Uh, to carve out a, a special niche uh, that, uh, you know, I mean, getting called the expert um, and having, you know, presidents of the BBWA or the New York Times or the, or the Wall Street Journal call me, it's cool. I love it. Um, but, you know, it is tough to see how, how much people struggle with this. You don't have to care about the Hall of Fame. I understand that people who want to tune out the noise uh, because so much of it is, is you know, is, is these endless debates about PEDs that have gone on now for 
you know, for, for 15 years and are going to go on for another, you know, 10 years at least while A-Rod is on the ballot. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think on the whole, um, the dialogue has, has, has changed. It's improved. I think our process for electing Hall of Famers is better. I think I've, I've helped that. Um, you know, we've, we've got some, some, uh, some great players into the Hall of Fame that might not have gotten there without the, you know, the, the advanced stats. So I'm pleased with, with how that's gone. St. Louis perspective. I'm curious about Kenny Boyer. And Jim Edmonds, where did you sit on those two? I, I've read your book, so I know your answer about Boyer, but where did you sit on Edmonds? And maybe you can explain that to our our listeners. I think I, you know, I think Jim Edmonds. I, I would I would find a spot for Jim Edmonds in the Hall of Fame. He's a little low in Jaws. I think the defensive metrics may undervalue him a little bit. Um, he got squeezed off because of this bat, this, this log jam uh, that was created by the uh, you know by the by the split with how to how to evaluate PEDs. Um, you know him and Kenny Lofton. I think just both. Uh, probably deserves spots in the Hall of Fame, as does Andrew Jones. They're three of the best center fielders I've ever seen. Uh, a lot of fun. Unfortunately, Edmonds had a hard time staying on the field, and I think that didn't help his cause. But uh, um, I'd rather see him in the Hall than, than outside it. And how about Kenny Boyer? Same thing. Third basemen are very underrepresented in the Hall. I think you could easily take four or five of them in. Scott Rowland, uh, Ken Boyer. Uh, and Greg Nettles, I think, would uh, and Dick Allen would be would be at the top of my list. Allen probably first <coughs> and foremost. Um, you know, I I have him uh, uh, as one of the one of the major omissions in the Hall of Fame. Uh, I know he played all around the diamond, but third base was actually where he created the most value. But Boyer, yeah, I, he was you know MVP, World Series winner, uh, tremendous defender. Um, you know, it's it's unfortunate he's not with us any longer. I think. Uh, uh, he deserves a spot. He's kind of Ron Santo before Ron Santo with, with maybe a better club. Yeah, I think he should be in. Hey, Jay, thanks for your time. Thanks for uh, your explanation on how this all works and where you get it from and uh, continued success with your writing and uh, voting for the Hall of Fame. We appreciate it. Okay, thank you. You got it. That's Jay Jaffe and Fangraph senior writer. Uh, by the way, there's only – this is amazing to me, and you can't tell me there's not third baseman more that should be in. Kenny Boyer, is, in my mind, is a Hall of Famer. Um, Jim Edmonds is a Hall of Famer, but back to third baseman, BK, there's there's seven third basemen right now in the Hall of Fame. Seven total. 100-plus years of baseball, there's only seven third basemen that deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. That's ludicrous. It's insanity, and it's an underrepresented position. It's something that needs to change. I think it's something that will change, and I like that Jay Jaffe told us that it's going to be probably two or three more years for Scott Rowland. I, I'm glad he's getting in. I still will never understand... Um, why we do it this way the the ballot politics i guess if you for lack of a better turn if he's a hall of famer he's a hall of famer kurt schilling is a hall of famer i i agree but but on on scott Rowland specifically his numbers aren't changing in the next three years so what he does on the baseball field is not changing what he what over the next three years so i don't understand why today well we could get it up to 53 percent but Two years from now, we're going to get it up to 75%. What changed for those 20% of voters? It, it doesn't make any sense to me, honestly. Writers should not be the morality police on this. I, I'm I'm steadfast now with that. I and I think you just look at the numbers, and that's how you vote. You don't look at Kurt Schilling's Twitter feed or what he says or what this guy has done or that guy has done. Obviously, Schilling is front and center. Look at the numbers. The guy had three World Series titles. He was part of two of the best World Series in recent probably 25 years. The, two, the 2001 World Series is one of the great World Series, if not the best ever in baseball. With the backdrop of 9-11, the Yankees, the Arizona Diamondbacks, he and Randy Johnson were immense in that. In 2004, he's part of 
the Boston Red Sox breaking the curse. He was not great, but pretty good. And and when they won again, so that's three of them. And he went to the World Series with the Phillies. 3,000 strikeouts, 300 strikeout seasons. He is a Hall of Famer. So stop. Put I, him in. I disagree with Jay. He did not have, no surprise to anybody that just heard that interview, he, he did not vote for Kurt Schilling uh, on his ballot. I just disagree with him. Um, I, the, the reason why I asked that question about if he had got in previously, if he got in when I believe he should have many, many years ago, before all of this stuff came out, before the tweeting, before the Facebook post, before any of the things that people are now uh, holding against him happened, we wouldn't take him out of the Hall of Fame for these things. Now, you can disagree with what he's saying and saying that it's a shame, and I get all of that, but we wouldn't be taking him out of the Hall of Fame because of the things that he said. So why now are we preventing him from getting into the Hall of Fame for things that are said? This is not changing who he was as a baseball player. He remains the same great pitcher that so he ever then just was. just vote him in for what he's done. As a player, eventually we need to come to terms with the fact that what happens off of the field needs to be held separate. If you got a problem with the PEDs, that's a totally different conversation because it directly impacts what happens on the field. But this off field stuff, Pro Football Hall of Fame, I think has it right on this. They've got other issues, but I think they have it right on this. You exclusively consider what a player did on the field in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. That's how it should be in baseball, too, in my opinion. This one drives me nuts. Barry Bonds was a Hall of Famer before he took PEDs. Really? Were you in the room when he got the PEDs? When do you know he started taking them? Now, do I think he's a Hall of Famer? Yeah, he's one of the greatest players I've ever seen in person. I saw a ball that he hit off of Jeff Supon at Bush Stadium, too, that before he got to first base had hit the facade and was back on the infield. He hit it 900 miles an hour. The guy is an unbelievable player. He's probably the best hitter I've ever seen. He's a Hall of Famer. Just put him in. Say, hey, he was part of the steroid era. Be mm. done with it. For God's sakes. This is the Danny Mac Show with BK, the podcast powered by I Promise. One, two, three, four. For the most part, that hasn't changed. Um, you know, we, we have a, a idea of, of what our payroll is going to look like, but we don't have a, a, a hard number. You know, obviously, when you sit in my seat, it's easier to build a club when you know exactly what you have to spend but that's where i think like you're seeing just some clubs right now in general just trying to remain patient and and ultimately uh, allow themselves as much time as possible to get a better sense of what revenues might look like that was john mosaylock a few weeks ago talking about where the cardinals stand with their budget going into the 2021 season with danny mack and tanner hendrickson i'm brandon kiley it's the danny mack show with bk dan i wanted to ask you about this because now that we know the blues are going to be able to have 1400 fans in the stands starting next week it seems like that would be a pretty good indicator to the cardinals that the city when the time comes, will allow the Cardinals also to be able to have socially distanced fans in the stands. And I know uh, Bill DeWitt, I believe it was Bill DeWitt Jr., said previously, hey, you know, we're going to be at 30%, and that's kind of going to be the cap. It's not going to go 28. Yep. It's not going to go 28% and then 40% and then, no, for us to socially distance, it's just going to stay there until we can truly have full crowds. So I would imagine, Dan, hearing this from the city towards the Blues, would kind of give the Cardinals a little bit more of an indication that Mo was talking about there. Hey, this is going to be what you're dealing with this year as well. How do you think that affects their plans now as they head out into free agency? I think it's a bigger question about um, not only this year, but then the pending CBA. And the Cardinals will have roughly $60 million coming off the books after this year, projected. Um, 
so it does. I think it gives them at least an idea of what they can spend. Now, does that mean that automatically they go out and say, well, we have this coming in, we think, and we're going to go out and get player X? Probably not. And I do think the first dominoes that have to fall are Molina and Wainwright. So I think more of the question is, once that is taken care of, then you know what you will spend. And I understand what you're saying. You're going to have more of a uh, revenue stream with the fans. And the, the Cardinals are based maybe more than any other team in baseball with fannies in the seats in terms of their revenue. So it does make some sense to bring up that point. Um, but again, I, I think they have a general idea of what they're going to do. I don't know what those numbers are. And that general idea would take you to Yachty and, and uh, Wainwright. Um, by the way, Major League Baseball offseason spending by division, the AL East is uh, $307 million. NL East is 143 AL Central 124 The National League West was $98 million. AL West $83 million. NL Central, as I mentioned earlier, $3.7 million. So seven teams, Cardinals included, with Pittsburgh, Arizona, Colorado, Baltimore, and Cleveland, with no signings or just minor league deals. So we haven't. It's not just here in St. Louis. It's happening across the board with majority of teams in baseball. And I was thinking about this as it stands right now. Miguel Cabrera will be making more than the entire Cleveland Indians payroll in 2021. As it stands right now, there is some good news. By the way, the Orioles equipment trucks left today to make the uh, thousand mile trip to they play at Ed Smith Stadium Complex. They, they're based in um, oh where is it? Sarasota. And um, now that doesn't guarantee that spring training is starting, but that means things are moving in the right direction. So. Again, I'm hopeful, BK, that we get spring training going. It's a 17th report date for the Cardinals, and then their first game would be, I think, on the 27th or the 28th. So we'll see. The reason why I brought it up is because of certainty, right? We talk about that a lot when it comes to production and the sure. lineup, whether or not you've got certainty or you're projecting or what you are what you can expect going into any given season. And for Mo. He loves certainty. He loves, and I would imagine ownership as well, like to know, okay, what can I expect when it comes to revenue going into the season? Normally, they know 3 million fans in the stands. I can expect that from day one. I know exactly what that's going to look like, right, as a bare minimum. Going into this season previously, at least over the last few months and weeks, it's a question. Is it going to be 0% for three months, and then we get to 28%, and then at the end we're at 100 You don't really know. Now I think you've... I think there's a little bit of certainty there of, okay, let's project now 28% capacity for the entire season. What does that look like revenue-wise? And what would that mean for us when it comes to our payroll? They already have cost certainty with a lot of these guys that are on the roster right now. If they're able to bring back Yachty and Wayno, does that leave any more wiggle room for other guys that are out there? I don't know the answer to that question. I, I haven't seen their finances, unfortunately, but... If I did, I would imagine Mo knows what that looks like for them, and hopefully this helps him better plan for what that could look like. Yeah, I mean, it gives you cost certainty. Everybody would want that, I think, in any walk of life, any business that you're running. You'd love to say, well, this is what we know we have coming in, and this is what's going to go out to our payroll and so on and so forth. But again, BK, this is such a weird deal. And just to say that they're going to open up, I'm not so sure they're going to open up at 28% right off the bat either. You don't think so? I don't know. I mean, who yeah. knows what's going to happen next week? You know, sure. I mean, they the, the virus will dictate what's going to happen. Um, you know, we we could get a report and they say, hey, we're, we, we're pushing back spring training, which means then, hey, maybe we can open up right at 28 percent because spring training has been pushed back and opening day then means, I don't know, an arbitrary date of May 1st. And at that point, a lot of things have changed in our country. 
it changes literally day to day. And I, I think Major League Baseball, not that they're in a holding pattern, but they're still like wait and see. And um, and that means the start of spring training, which then would mean when do you start opening day? And then for all these municipalities, I mean, not just St. Louis, what's, what are the Blue Jays going to do? Can you go to, I mean, look what's going on in hockey. They can't cross the border. I mean, sounds like uh, California might be allowing their teams to play and stay soon or in San Jose. So fingers crossed on that. Yeah, um, I would agree with that. That would be huge. But again, different places, municipalities are all different. So there is no clear cut 28%. We open up. That means it's going and who knows you open up at 28%. I don't know how many people that would be, but would you sell it out? What's the feeling of people coming down to the ballpark? I, we we don't know until we open this thing up. I will say this. I did a basketball game back-to-back nights in Springfield, Missouri, and they were allowing 4,000 people into their building. It was weird being back in a stadium or an arena that had fans, and they probably had about 2,000 fans, and you might as well made it 20,000. It sounded and felt different. It was just different, and it's going to be great once we get back to some semblance of normalcy, just generally speaking, of being able to go to a game and have fans in the stands. I mean, when's the last time you went to a place that had fans? God, I mean, it's probably been more than a year now. Yeah, you I'm know, telling you, it catches your attention. I think the last, actually, you know what? It's been almost exactly a year. The last game that I went to that had fans in the stands would have been the uh, the Chiefs playoff game last year against the Texans. It makes a difference, man. It makes a huge difference. This is the Danny Mac Show with BK, the podcast powered by I Promise. Danny Mack and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. It is the Danny Mack show with BK 65780 is the air comfort service tax line to get some questions in for Danny Mack and BK and BK. If you want to go that route uh, from the three, one, four, Dan gut feeling and BK Dan and BK gut feeling. Do you think that Yadier Molina will be back with the Cardinals next year? Yes, I do. I think the market is shrinking. I think he comes back here. We talked about it yesterday. Marketplace is being set with Castro and McCann. You're probably somewhere in between. Then the question becomes legacy. And then it's just the design of the contract. I do think he comes back here. I do. You? I do as well. I've said it all along. I think that this is the place that makes the most sense. The one question that I would have now, and I, the Padres already signed a catcher, correct? So oh, they, And they traded for a bunch at the trade deadline, too. So it seems unlikely that they would go down this you're path. Always a cons- you're a conspiracy theorist. I love this. Go for it. It's not so much that as, like, the, the Yadier Molina Instagram post today. Oh, come the fact on. That Wayno Why has do you get an all into these from the Padres. Instagram posts? Why? It's all we've got, Dan. Wong put one out and you said, hey, remember that a few months ago? And you were going crazy. And it was his birthday. We got to stop. We've got to follow the breadcrumbs somewhere. I understand. It is 2021. There's not a ton going on. So we follow Instagram. He put out on on Instagram um, a post, a picture with him and and (gasps) Wayno. No way. Walking onto the field. Uh Uh-huh. And it said, hermanos. Really? Yes. Wait for this. And it also had a couple of prayer emojis. Well, maybe he's hoping they stay together or they're going to be together in a particular place in Major League Baseball. And that place might be St. Louis or San Diego or Chicago. What do you do when um, he posts a picture with he and his family or other friends? That one's boring. Okay, you don't worry about that no, one. That no, one. That okay, one, that one the kids I don't, don't mess worry with. about that one. Uh-uh. All right, no, 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 no. Um, I I exclusively worry about it when it has him 
and <gasps> asking about his future oh. or including uh-huh. Adam Wainwright. Oh, yep. yep. Okay. You know how this goes, Dan. Uh, six five seven eight zero is the air comfort service tax line <laughs> from the six three six. I gotta give you trouble, BK. Absolutely, I love it. Hey guys, I know this is mostly a baseball show, but what are your thoughts on the Jared Goff situation in L.A.? Dan, have you seen this stuff coming out of L.A. with the Rams? Yeah, I don't think Goff? McVay wants him. I think you're right. Yeah, read between the lines. Read in a press conference. You always see. That's the thing when people look at a press conference. Sometimes, and I've been doing this for thirty years been the voice of the Cardinals coming up on 24 years on television. Okay. Read between the lines sometimes in a press conference. And you've, if you watched or Instagram, stop, <laughs> this is a verbal thing. If you watch McVay and I saw some of the comments, I just, yeah, I don't think he wants him there. I think he was benched in the playoffs. I think that's what happened. I think he was clearly healthy enough to play because we saw him come in and play And I think Sean McVay believed that their backup quarterback gave them a better chance to win in that game than Jared Goff did. And now there's comments that have come out that if if Jared Goff is still with the Rams, which doesn't seem like a sure thing right now, Stafford, that's who you go get. I don't think they can for the money. I think they've got a money problem there. If Jared Goff is back. They're going to make it an open competition between him and the backup. Yeah, that's that's also saying we really don't want want him. Yeah. They don't want him there anymore. Right. Open competition means, um, yeah, we don't want you. Yeah. I think yeah. it's pretty clear at this point. Yeah. That's what I would say. You got one more before we say good, uh, goodbye? Uh, this one comes from the... We got a the... bunch of the stuff on the uh, MLB stuff. People are fired up about that with Absolutely. the Hall of Fame. Uh, from the 636, uh, guys, do you believe that going into next year, any of Barry Bonds, Kurt Schilling nope. will get in? Nope. Nope. I don't think any of them do. I think Roland jumps up probably to. Do you think A Rod gets in? No, sixty-five percent. I mean, the, the the argument with A Rod is that he same thing. <laughs> it's the PED thing, and it's officially on the record with him. With other guys, it's innuendo and suspicion and that kind of thing. And those guys aren't getting in. And this what guy. What do we do with David Ortiz then? I, I think it's a fascinating case, and he's beloved by many members of the media. But that shouldn't matter. That's the bias. That's shouldn't the problem matter. with it. Exactly. Shouldn't matter. That's why you go with just the numbers. Stop all the other stuff. Be done with it and just go with the numbers. It's not the Hall of Saints. The Hall of Fame for players, what they did on the field. It's that simple. You know, I'm with you. It's not the morality police that the writers now have been forced to be put in that position, unfortunately for them. And I do feel for them. They're in a tough spot. I mean, imagine if you voted for him and you give and Kurt Schilling gets in and you're a writer how uncomfortable that Hall of Fame speech might get. And it might. Very well could. You don't know what's going to come out of his mouth. That's the dilemma. Michael Jordan had an uncomfortable Hall of Fame speech. You guys remember that? Yeah. He, he was basically naming everybody past who ever doubted him. Great, it was fine. Uncomfortable. But now you're in. Done. He, he's a Hall of Famer. Right. I'm done what? with it. I it just. I also think that we need to take a look. If if writers are going to have blank ballots, then we need to open it up to other people, whether it's broadcasters that are there every day for 15 years, 20 years, whatever. Um, maybe get more people inside the game that are voting on this, too, and have a different way that the vote comes about outside of just the writers. The writers have a say. This is a section that has a say. Somebody else has a say. That's the formula. Put guys in. But it, bottom line is... It's what you did on the field and not all the other stuff. That's where I'm at.
I'm with you. Dan, coming up today on BK and Ferrario, we've got Brian Lawton, former NHL general manager. He's going to talk to us about the Vince Dunn situation and how a general manager handles that. We'll also talk with our guy, Joey Vitale, the blues analyst, coming up at 1230. I'm going to get on Instagram, and uh, I'm going to put some emojis out maybe and, and you know, see what see Make what people of, question yeah, your future. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, like <laughs> I Look. We're brothers. We want to stay together. Maybe we're coming back to St. Louis. Maybe we're not. But the intrigue is there. I get it. I'm just having a little fun, BK. I love it. BK Ferrario coming up next. You've been listening to The Danny Mac Show with BK, the podcast powered by I Promise.